Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. If you have a Bible today, I invite you to join me in the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, the writer begins. That word, obviously, is a contrast, and it harks back to the end of chapter 8. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. And then here's our main text. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. The context of Isaiah chapter 9 is that this is a prophecy which was written about 700 years before the coming of Christ. This passage that speaks of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the nations is quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, and applied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that this is a direct reference to the Messiah. And notice it develops a very interesting metaphor, the metaphor of light and darkness. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And upon them who were in the shadow of death, Upon them the light hath shined. Matthew's version in the New Testament says light has sprung up. A new day has dawned. And one might ask the question, what metaphor does Scripture most frequently associate with the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, Scripture speaks of the birth of Jesus as the breaking of a new day. The dawn of of messianic light, the morning of redeeming grace, if you please. I like that idea, that imagery. We're all familiar with light and darkness. You know, in the beginning of time when God created the heavens and the earth, darkness was upon the face of the deep until God said, let there be light. And light infused the darkness. Light dispelled the darkness. The darkness comprehended it not, says John chapter 1, that is, the darkness could not resist it. I want you to notice the imagery then of this metaphor of morning, which breaks into a new day. For that is exactly what the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ was. It was the beginning of an eternal day, a day that will never end, where the sun will never set where there's no need of the light of the sun or of the moon. It's a day in which the light will shine forever. And in a world of darkness, how wonderful to know that there is light in this world. And it's the light of Christ. It's the light of his grace. Redeeming grace has dawned. Let's explore this imagery of light and darkness. And it's common again in the book of Isaiah. We've seen it in our text, Isaiah chapter 9. If you turn forward to the 49th chapter of Isaiah, verse 6, 
And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God says of the Messiah, you will be a light to the Gentiles. Chapter 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. This passage in Isaiah chapter 60 speaks of the coming of Christ and the new covenant as the dawn of a new day. The sun rising upon a dark world. And as we proceed in scripture, we learned that the Lord Jesus Christ is God's eternal light. You may want to study sometime the names or titles of Jesus given in the first chapter of John's gospel. And one of those titles in John chapter 1 is Jesus is called the capital L-I-G-H-T, the light. And of course, the Old Testament prophesied of this, that the Messiah would be God's eternal light. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 5 says, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Now, these are the last words of David. And he talks about the importance of righteousness in leadership. The king must be righteous and just. And he shall be, says verse 4 of 2 Samuel 23, talking about the Messiah or the ultimate ruler over men, the ultimate king of the universe. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds. I like that language. The Messiah will be like a morning without clouds. He will be the dawn of a new day as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. He shall be as the light of the morning, as a morning without clouds. Let's just go through several verses that speak of this image applied to the Messiah. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, capital S-U-N, of Righteousness arise. Now when the sun rises, that's called the dawn, isn't it? And the Messiah is called the Son of Righteousness who will arise with healing in his wings. Now when the sun is depicted poetically as having wings, it means it flies. And we know that the sun rises in the east and it apparently that is, from our vantage point, flies to the western horizon in about 12 hours. But he says, as the rays of the sun illumine creation, the new creation of God, it will spread healing. And of course, we know that sunlight is very important. It is necessary to cleansing and to photosynthesis and all of the factors that take place in the natural world. And even so, my friends, when the sun of righteousness rises, and what's he talking about in that verse? Unto you that fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise. He's talking about the coming of a new day, the dawn of redeeming grace, the beginning of messianic light. And he says, when he rises with healing in his wings, it will have a very salutary effect on the people of God. So he, Jesus Christ is a morning without clouds, the sun of righteousness who rises. 
And then we move to the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 79, and the hymn of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. He speaks of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ. And then he says that this Messiah, the Christ, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Notice the images, the sunrise, the morning without clouds, that is a crystal clear, beautiful morning. And now the day spring, that is the springing in of a new day, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Of course, when you move to the Gospel of John, we read these words, John 1, 7. The same, John the Baptist, came for a witness to bear witness to the light, capital L. Who's the light? Not John, but Jesus. John was witnessing about the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, that is, John the Baptist was not the light, of men, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. This was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And of course, as you proceed through John's gospel, Jesus is going to claim that title as his own. For instance, John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, says Jesus. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you follow Jesus, he says, you will have the light of life. Now, what is the light of this world, or who is the light of this world? Is science the light of this world? Secular science? Now, you know, one thing about the world's scientific theories is they seem to be in flux. They seem to be changing, constantly morphing. You know, truth never changes. If something's true, it's true today, it's true yesterday, it'll be true tomorrow, and you don't have to adapt it and change it and adjust it for, you know, circumstances, contemporary circumstances. I'm telling you, dear friends, the light of this world is not secular science. The light of this world is not human philosophy. The light of this world is not political power and influence. Jesus Christ is the only true light in this world. The only legitimate light. John chapter 9 verse 5. Jesus gives sight to a man who was born in darkness. A man that was born blind. He opens his eyes. And Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then in John chapter 12 verse 46 again. Notice how he continues to develop this idea of heavenly light. He says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. He says, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Now, how many people are confused? How many people are living their lives in a fog and entrenched in ignorance and superstition? And how many people are in bondage and the darkness of misery and distress and ignorance and wickedness pervades their lives. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, my beloved, came to give light to men. And not only is Jesus the light. In fact, if you go to the last book of the Bible, 
near the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, he says this, I am the bright and morning star. I am the root and offspring of David. Jesus, my friends, is the eternal son. So this, this natural orb that illumines our planet and that uh, is no doubt central to our solar system, this natural creation of God is an emblem, if you please, a symbol of the true light. And if the sun ever burns out, which no doubt it will melt with fervent heat one day when the Lord comes back, I'm telling you the eternal sun of righteousness will shine forever. And I'm wondering today if he is shining in your souls. I'm wondering if he has illumined your mind. I'm wondering if there is any light in your dwelling in the midst of the darkness of this Egyptian world, this Egyptian night. I'm wondering, my friends, if the children of Israel have light in their dwellings because the sun has risen, morning has broken, a new day has dawned in your life by his redeeming grace. You see how this metaphor, this image, speaks very poignantly to where you and I live today. Now, perhaps you say today, Brother Mike, that passage you just read a moment ago said, as long as he's in the world, he's the light of the world, but he's not in the world anymore. Well, I'm telling you, his gospel is still in the world, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been left behind and is proclaimed today, is now the light in this dark world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the God of this world, that is the devil, little g, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It's true, isn't it, that the old devil is trying to confuse the issue. He is blinding people's minds. He's trying to steal their minds through drugs and alcohol. He is trying to confuse their minds through false ideas that are propagated in popular media. In university classrooms, as human ideas that are contrary to the word of God are promoted and people say, well, I just really don't know where to come down on this issue. The devil is blinding people's minds, but I'm telling you what will set your mind straight. The light of the glorious gospel of Christ. That's ultimate reality. That God loved a people. That God from all eternity past chose a people as his own and marked them out and made provision for their eternal happiness and accomplished on their behalf what they were incapable of accomplishing for themselves. My beloved, that God has brought them to a unto himself in a vital relationship and that they will be safe forever in his presence for all eternity. That, my friends, is the light of truth, the light of the gospel that is the ultimate reality. That's the benchmark. That's ground zero. That's the foundation for a stable and successful life. The gospel of Jesus is the light. Second Peter 1.19 says, We have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. That is, until that eternal day dawns and the day star arise in your hearts. Indeed, my beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is a more sure word of prophecy. It's a light that shines in a dark place. And therefore, the word of God is a light to us. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, I'm wondering if any of you have been wandering through life, confused, wondering how to solve your problems, wondering how to handle your emotional issues, wondering how to get along with other sinners. That's not an easy task, is it? I'm wondering if any of you have uh, been confused and perplexed at what's happening in, you know, on the grand stage of society, human culture. We see the evil and the insidious kinds of conspiracies that are worked in the back rooms that are trying to maneuver and manipulate human beings like pawns on a chessboard in order to, you know, pad the pockets of the power brokers, and we, we wonder what is happening, and there's, there, there seems to be an insidious, sinister, devilish kind of factor involved, doesn't there, that the old devil is at work, he's in the details, trying to do what he can to undermine sanity and stability and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you think about all that, you say, Brother Mike, there's just so much darkness, but here's my point, morning has broken. A new day has dawned. There is light to be had in this dark world. There is hope. It's not all a matter of despair and reason for depression and discouragement. There is meaning and significance, and that is found in the Lord. Psalm 36, 9 says, In thy light shall we see light. If you want light, it won't be borrowed from human institutions. It won't be found in man's thinking and ideas. It'll be found, my friends, in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And therefore, his church is a light in this dark world. It's a city set upon the hill which cannot be hid. You know, one of the traditions many people have this time of year is to go around and see the Christmas lights. And little children especially enjoy the twinkling lights. I'm telling you, dear friends, there's a light that shines in this dark world, and it's not hung on somebody's house, and it's not on a tree somewhere, but it's the light that is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the people of God. That's the light in the midst of this world's darkness. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, God has many saints, many sanctified ones, but they're not all in light. They're not all enlightened. They don't all understand. But the church may be described as the saints who are in light. These are people of God who've been sanctified by his grace, but they've also, dear friends, been given the light of truth. And then in verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness... Now, here's what God has done for his people. He has delivered, past tense, us from the power, the authority, the stranglehold of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. When a person is born again, he is translated. He is picked up from one place and put in another. When the Bible was originally written, you know it was written, the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament in Greek. Now, I can't read Hebrew, and I can't read Greek. I read English. 
But we have a Bible today because some smart scholar somewhere, linguistic scholar, translated from the original language into the English equivalent. Therefore, I can read the Word of God because it's been moved from this language to this. This verse says that God has translated us. He's picked us out of our native darkness. He's translated us from the power of darkness, and he's put us into the kingdom of his dear son. He's shined the light in your soul. That's what regeneration is. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God are people who've been brought into the light. Light has dawned in their hearts. Light has burst onto the scene in their dark thinking. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we therefore are to show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Jesus would tell us in Matthew 5.16 that you are the light of the world. The church, his disciples, his people, his followers. It is those of us who understand ultimate reality, who understand the truth. And we don't understand it perfectly, do we? I wouldn't dare to be so presumptuous as to say that we've got it all figured out, but we do understand that God is real and that his word is true and that he is a God of grace and mercy and love and compassion and that Jesus Christ is a successful Savior. And that wonderful truth, my friends, is light in our thinking, light in our attitudes and hearts. It is more lovely than the best holiday display of lights. For the light of God's word to shine in our hearts, and therefore we should live as Christians, letting our light so shine before men that others may see our good work. Now, the light is not your light. It's not something you've generated. It's not from your personality. It's not your native light that you were born with, because we have no native light. We ourselves, says Ephesians 5, 8, we were sometimes darkness. Notice that verse doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. By nature, my beloved, there is not even a flicker of love for the Lord. There's not even a glimmer of truth in our native hearts. By nature, we are darkness itself. Have you ever been in a dark place, maybe a cellar during a tornado or a storm? Or uh, perhaps some of you have even been down in a mine shaft or in a very cramped kind of setting and it was just so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The darkness was palpable. The darkness was so pervasive there wasn't even any hint of light. Well, that's what our hearts are like by nature. But the good news is, though you were sometimes darkness, now you are light in the Lord. And therefore, he says, walk as children of light. So I'm trying to develop the metaphor of light and darkness. And I think what I've said could be summarized in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8b, which says, The darkness now is past, and the true light now shineth. Morning has broken. In the Protestant Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries, one of the familiar mottos was this Latin phrase, post tenebris lux. After darkness, light. You know that preceding the Protestant Reformation, there was the medieval period in human history, which basically is the period between 500 A.D. and 1500, about a 1,000-year period. And the medieval period was called the Dark 
ages. It was dark because it was a time of ignorance and superstition. Most of your nursery rhymes were written during that period, you know, Hansel and Gretel and, you know, the gingerbread man and, you know, all of these dark things with kids getting in trouble and being injured and hurt. And it was dark because it was a time of ignorance and superstition. People believed in fairies and gnomes and leprechauns and, you know, there were all sorts of beliefs in magic and witches and so forth like that. It was dark because it was a time of political corruption. The feudal lords held the power and the peasants, the common people, were basically treated as slaves or indentured servants. They had no economic prosperity. The rich and the famous called the shots. The haves were in control and they owned the palatial mansions and palaces and estates and the poor often lived in grass and mud huts and just barely eked out a subsistence from day to day. These were the dark ages. The people were kept in bondage religiously as the clergy would not let the people be educated. The clergy actually did their services in formal Latin. Well, the people that did speak Latin didn't speak this sophisticated formal kind of Latin. And Bibles were kept chained to the pulpits and the churches so that the people couldn't take and read them. Even if they could read, they didn't have access to them. And they believed whatever their leaders told them. In the meantime, the uh, clerical class, the clergy, the priests and preachers were getting rich based on uh, the people. They were convincing the people that if they wanted their loved ones to go to heaven, then they had to put money in the collection plate. The adage was very familiar in that day, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And they built St. Peter's Basilica. Pope Leo actually built St. Peter's Basilica in Rome with the proceeds that were gleaned from, you know, bilking the peasants, the common people out of their whatever coins they had. They built this majestic cathedral it was called the Dark Ages. Roman Catholicism dominated Eastern Europe, both the Eastern part of the world and the developing West. There, it was a time of great bloodshed and Vandals and Goths and Visigoths and Vikings and Nordic hordes were not uncommon. And there were battles between different countries and tribes and it was, it was a very hard kind of life. I have a book on my library shelves at home about that period, the Dark Ages, the medieval period, which is titled A World Lit Only by Fire. That is the only light they had was the fire of war, the fire of conflict, the fire of persecution. It was a world that was lit not by the light of God, but by the fire of conflict and social controversy. Now, we know that those of us who know a bit of Baptist history know that while the world at large was engrossed in deep darkness, the common people that we know to be our spiritual ancestors, which scholastics call the free church movement, these were Christians that maintained Baptistic principles like the Waldenses and the Lollards and the Novatians and the Donatists and the Albigenses and the Paulicians and the Petrobrusians. These were ancestors that held to Baptist principles, that is, 
We claim a lot of what we do today in church history based on them. We know that they were still extant. They existed and they were still trying to serve the Lord and care for one another and preach the truth and practice the New Testament church practice. Even though the world at large was engrossed in darkness, our Baptist forefathers still had light in their dwellings. We know that. But by and large, Western civilization in that day was enshrouded in an oppressive religious darkness. Then on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a German Augustinian monk, posted his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, in which he protested in 95 particulars excesses in Catholicism. And Gutenberg's printing press had been invented just about a century before, and the 95 theses were reproduced and distributed to the populace. And before you know it, a flame, a wildfire broke out, and it became known as the Protestant Reformation, protesting the establishment, protesting the deep-seated rulers and movers and shakers of the day. These were the common people. It was an uprising, if you please, that uh, challenged the status quo. And the motto, post-tenebrous lux, after darkness, the darkness of the medieval period, light has sprung up, became again the motto of the Protestant Reformation. And we know that in the next century, in the 18th century, the secular world responded with its own awakening called the Enlightenment, which was basically a movement to supplant divine revelation, God's word, in favor of human reason. The Enlightenment and all of the Enlightenment philosophers was an attempt to explain the universe and the significance of life apart from God. And that, my friends, still permeates our culture today. That has influenced the way people think today. That's why people have rejected religion in favor of science. Now, science has a legitimate place. But in a world of darkness, a world that's under the curse of sin, a world that is destroying itself, a world that is in trouble, man has come up with his solution. Here's our light. But we know, don't we, that man's light is only a false kind of light. It's only in his light that we can see light. It's only the light of truth. And what this passage is telling us here in Isaiah chapter 9 that I've read in your hearing is that after the darkness of the Old Testament era and after the darkness that sin has brought into the world, the coming of Jesus Christ brings eternal light. Let's go to the text real quickly before the clock beats me this morning. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. What he's talking about here, here's the historical setting of this passage, is the threat of Assyrian invasion in Judah. If you know your Old Testament history, and perhaps uh, this is a little bit too academic for many of us, but... uh, In uh, 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. It fell. Only the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, continued. But when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they also threatened to come on down to the very south, all the way down to Jerusalem. And we know eventually they did. We know eventually the Babylonians came in and took the Jews captive to Babylon, right, for 70 years. And the nation had gone into bondage. 
There are two slavery episodes in Jewish history. Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Babylon for 70 years. But anyway, they're facing the time during Isaiah's days in which the Assyrians are threatening to invade Judah. We're about 700 years before Christ. And in response, if you'll read Isaiah chapter 8, we took our text in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. If you'll read the previous chapter, in response, Judah seeks to form an alliance with Egypt. They say, well, we need reinforcements. So let's get Egypt on our side. And he tells them, don't say a confederacy. He said, don't fear their fear. Don't walk in the ways of your neighbors. He says, you sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So in response to the threat of Assyrian invasion, they form an alliance with Egypt. And then they engage in enchantments and pagan rituals for guidance, as you'll see in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. He says, they say, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto the wizards that peep and that mutter. He said, should not a people seek to their God? Why do you go to, a, to the palm reader and her fortune telling and her crystal ball? Why do you go to her to enchantments when you could go to God in prayer? You know, that's what he's saying. So these are God's people, and instead of relying on the Lord when the enemy threatens to invade them, they're going to their neighbor saying, we need your help. They're trying to make political alliances, and they are going to the fortune tellers and saying, do a seance for us and tell us what's going to happen. Give us guidance. And what he's describing here is the people were in a dark, confused condition. Wouldn't you say that? If they're going to witches and warlocks and and necromancers, and they're leaning on political alliances, they are in darkness. It's a dark period. That's the historical setting here. The nation was in spiritual darkness, and it filtered down from Galilee in the north, as our text says, Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea. You know, if you remember your geography of the way the land of Canaan, the Holy Land is laid out, you know the very north is the Sea of Galilee. And then it comes down the Jordan River all the way down to the Dead Sea at the bottom. And you've got the tribes positioned, the 12 tribes in the land. Zebulun and Naphtali are at the top. And all the way down to Judah and Benjamin at the bottom. You know, all the tribes. You can look in the back of your Bible sometime and see these maps to see how it's all laid out. But listen to the text. He talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. We're in Galilee the northern part, and he says, by way of the sea, in Galilee of the Gentiles, or the nations, and the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. So he's saying that the threat of invasion is coming, and the people are in darkness, they're looking to man and to witches for their guidance and help. Instead of to the Lord, they're in darkness, but he prophesies here that the light is about to dawn. And this, again, is a messianic prophecy. When did the light dawn? When was the darkness of man's religion and man's ideas and man's confusion and man's distress resolved? When Jesus Christ was born. That's the dawn of a new day. Let me read you what John Newton said about this passage. John Newton is, you know, the author of Amazing Grace. And how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, two great hymns in our hymnal. He wrote this about Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The land allotted to the tribes of Issachar, that was one of Jacob's 12 sons, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, was chiefly included in the province, which upon a subsequent division of the country obtained the name of Galilee. The northern part of it, 
The inheritance of Naphtali was the boundary or frontier towards Syria and had been frequently vexed and afflicted when the sins of Israel brought the armies of their enemies upon them as frontier countries usually suffer most in times of invasion and war. Particularly this part of the land called Galilee of the Gentiles was the first and most immediately exposed to the ravages of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And as the people there were likewise more mixed with foreigners, that is their, their border town, and at the greatest distance from the capital Jerusalem at the very southern part of this land, on these accounts Galilee was lightly esteemed by the Jews themselves. In fact, they thought no prophet could arise out of Galilee. It even prejudiced Nathaniel in the New Testament, you remember? Against the first report he received of Jesus as the Messiah, and he asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He says, they were accounted a rude, that is the Galileans, and unpolished provincial people. This despised and least valued part of the land of Israel was the principal scene of the Messiah's life and ministry. Do you know where Jesus spent most of his time? He died in Jerusalem, down south, but he spent most of his time up near the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, you know, all of those cities. That's where Nazareth, that's where he, that's his hometown. He says, this was the principal scene of Messiah's life and ministry. He was, however, brought up in Nazareth and lived for a time in Capernaum, towns in Galilee, but both of so little repute that had they not been connected with his history, it's probable that their names would have never been transmitted to posterity. But by his residence there, Galilee was honored and ennobled. Light sprung up. So likewise are those places, says Mr. Newton, where the Lord is pleased to send his gospel where the glorious gospel of the blessed God is faithfully preached and thankfully received, an obscure village may be seen to be more honorable and of more real consequence than the cities of a great empire where this light shineth not. My beloved, the point is when Jesus came, he brought light. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. God invaded the darkness of human history with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has invaded the darkness of your sins and mine with his redeeming grace when we were translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And God is still in the business of dispelling the darkness of human ignorance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though this world around us is dark, we as God's people have light in our dwellings. May God bless you and me today to walk in the sunlight of Christ's truth with sunshine in our hearts, though the world around us is dark, for our Lord Jesus Christ is a morning without clouds.
shoes and see my path but 